1 John 2, verses 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our current series, we're working our way through 1 John. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, as was just read. Know That You Know God is the uh, title of this series. And uh, to know that you know God is heaven on earth. To know that you know God is heaven on earth. And uh, we started looking at conditions for fellowship. And now we come to the second condition for fellowship or intimacy with God is, is embrace your advocate. Now, here's a question I asked our staff two weeks ago. Curious at how you might answer this. What is the greatest need of those you serve? What is the greatest need, and I added to that, what is the greatest need of your spouse? What is the greatest need of your children? What is the greatest need of your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends? How would you answer that? Here's my answer. It is your holiness. Your wholeness. Your healthiness. Your happiness that comes as a result of your holiness. They are one and the same pursuit. Your wholeness, that's the best thing you can give to others. As you remember, uh, relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. That you becoming whole, then you'll be better to respond to them and to the events of life. It'll make all the difference in the world. And so it is your holiness, your wholeness, your healthiness that ultimately brings to you a happiness that is out of this world. Uh, There's something else that goes along with this uh, wholeness, and that is mental health. Let me give you a definition for mental health. Mental health is being in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety. So it's so, and, and that's what I love about the gospel because it doesn't deny reality, but it helps us to be relatively free from the anxiety uh, that reality can bring because we have an advocate. And uh, the only way that uh, you can be in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety is to fully embrace your advocate and to understand the implications of that. Now, as we've been working through conditions for fellowship, remember how we started this whole, the whole letter starts, uh, it's, it's really amazing how John basically says, we saw God, 
We touched God. We heard God. And in fact, our hearts were captivated by God. And I'm, we're, we're proclaiming this to you so that you can have the same intimacy we have with God, that you would have the same intimacy that we have with God. That's what he's saying. It just it starts off really wonderfully in, in, in essence. And he, he, he gives us one of the purpose statements there in the verse 4, chapter 1 by saying that I write these things to you so that our joy may be complete. So intimacy with God brings a completeness of joy, a fullness of joy. As you've heard me say many times before, I'll keep saying it, is that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. It's life's most satisfying. Nothing will satisfy you like intimacy with God. And that's how he starts it. And then he goes on to kind of talk about, well, what does that mean and what does that look like and how does God uh, help us to walk through life and the events of life? And he immediately says that God is light. Remember, we talked about that walk in the light is that first condition. So he goes from intimacy with God to now these are the conditions, or you could also say signs of a healthy Christian or signs that you really know God. So this is not a way that you attain intimacy with God. It's how you maintain and nurture intimacy with God now that you have it. Intimacy with God is a blood-bought gift that's given to us by God through the sacrificial love of his Son, And so that's ours. That is ours. And you can live in the reality of that every day. And um, and so he he starts off here with walk in the light. Remember, we said God is light. And as we walk with him in the light, he will expose our sin, but his blood cleanses us from all sin. That was last weekend's message, kind of the the three major points there. So what does that mean that as he exposes our sin and he cleanses us from all sin, what does that mean? I think cleansing from all sin is, is about him making us whole and holy and healthy and strong. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's the next uh, condition for fellowship, and that's embrace your advocate. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? We'll get to that in just a moment. But look at your sermon notes here. If you want to know the difference, the major difference between all the religions of our world and Christianity, by the way, there's a major difference. A lot of times people will try to put Christianity with all the major religions and cults of our day, and you can't do that if you really understand the difference between the two. This is on your notes. All other religions send advisors to tell, you, tell us what we must do to be right with God. Christianity sends an advocate to tell us what he has done to make us right with him. All other religions point to a path, They'll give you a list of rules or whatever kind of design that they have, but it's something that you must do to be right with God. Christ came, and it's through what he has done that makes us right with God. All other religions point to a path, but Christianity points to a person. So there's two questions that I believe this text answers for us how to embrace our advocate and then why should we embrace our advocate let's take that first question how to embrace your advocate here's the first fill in the blank how do you embrace your advocate don't sin welcome to desert breeze 
Don't sin. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? The first point on the notes, don't sin. But, but uh, that's what he's saying in verse, verse 1, the first part of verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I like the phrase, my little children. John uses these tender words of affection seven times in this letter. My, my wife, when she would take our little kids at that time, she would take them grocery shopping with her. And those of you that are parents know when you take little kids grocery shopping, it can get chaotic from time to time, pretty crazy. And, but she was, she was really good at helping, helping them to behave. And uh, they would all hang on to the side of the grocery cart, all three of them, and walk with mom up and down the aisles. And uh, there was a time when little Natalie, the youngest, um, asked mom this question. She said, mommy, why do you look like this when we are in the grocery store? She had that look on her face like big eyes and, her, and she was clenching her teeth. And uh, I don't think Nancy responded this way, but I know that Nancy was thinking this way. It's because I'm doing all I can to keep myself from doing something that I will regret later, my little children. <laughs> Yeah, it was just, uh, and, and sometimes you all know what that means, okay? And um, so John is not saying my little children with clenched teeth, okay? <laughs> uh, he has not become a bitter old man. He has become a very gentle, loving old man. By the way, let me just say that you will either become a bitter old man or a bitter, bitter old lady if you don't deal with your stuff. Better yet, let Christ deal with your stuff. Walk in the light, let him expose the darkness in your life, and then let his blood cleanse you from all sin. And that's a daily process. And uh, that's why he taught us how to pray, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. You're taking the trash out daily. You've got to do that. The sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you, you've got to take that out every day. Take it to the, to the cross so that he will bring wholeness and healthiness and holiness to, to your life. And so I think he's also saying here, John, by using these words, my little children, no matter how much you are messed up and struggle with sin, you are first and foremost a child of God. And you always have to come back to that. No matter how much you struggle, you're a child of God. That's the foundation. You've got to come back to that. You've got to think about that. Think of the implications of that. And, and John is expressing the Father heart of God for them. But also as you read the rest of the of that first part of the, uh, verse one, why would John say, he'd give us another purpose statement, I am writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Why would he say that? Because of what he just said in the first chapter. Verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's just basically saying, yeah, we're all sinners. We not only have a nature to sin, but we do sinful things. That's what he, he, he says that also in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. He's just saying, that's blasphemous. So you need to come to terms with the fact that we have a sinful nature and we all do sin. 
And uh, he wants to bring that to your awareness. And so what he's saying, the reason why he's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin, in the context of what he just said, that, that we do have sin, he, he's telling us, really, this is, this is not a license to sin. It's not a license to sin. And there's a fine line between using grace as an excuse for sin and using grace as a cure for sin. Does it, did you guys track with that? Okay, three, four of you. You need to get that. Because I hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, hey, God forgives, that's what he does. It's like, yeah, I know that, but you don't understand. That's, that's a kind of a, a cheap grace kind of mindset. And, and so, so let me say it again. There's a fine line between using grace as an excuse for sin and using grace as a cure for sin. I, I, I knew a guy that used to say this. It used to really bother me. But he would say, and maybe you've heard people say this before, so don't say this around me, okay? But he, he said, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for, for permission. Have you guys heard that before? It's annoying, yeah. Yeah, that is a lack of integrity and a major character flaw. And there's a lot of Christians that live like that. Well, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. I know that he wouldn't allow me to do this, but I'll just ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me. That's what he does. That's called cheap grace. It's cheap grace as opposed to costly grace. True grace. And, um, and so... It's important to know the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. In the 1930s, the German church, which was the church of Luther, the great reformer of the gospel, began to um, capitulate to Hitler. And so that, that German church began to capitulate, endorse and embrace Hitler, surrender and submit to Hitler. And a guy by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, spy, and eventually a martyr, stood up against the German uh, church and Hitler, and he lost his life over this, but he said, that's cheap grace that you would embrace him. You don't understand what real grace is. And uh, he makes a distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. So let me, let me define it for you, it's on your notes. Cheap grace is marked by formalism and liberalism. And it was very common in his day and time. And many churches tend to head in that direction if they don't preach the gospel consistently and regularly. And, uh, and so formalism is all form and no function and no substance. Um, all form and no substance, just going through the motions and checking the church box. It would be like you came in here today and, and you just went, I did that. And by the way, how long is this guy gonna preach? And I'd like to get out of here. There's things I need to do here. What's more important than to spend time studying God's word together? But that's, that's almost a sign of formalism. Like you're just going through the motions, you're just checking the box. Don't you realize this is, this is an opportunity to encounter God through worship in song and in study of God's word? That's my heart for you is that you would have an encounter with your advocate, with the living God every time we gather. And, um, 
And so that's formalism. Liberalism is uh, this. God just loves and forgives everyone, so it doesn't really matter how you live. And that was very common in that church in Germany, the German church. And see, these are people who don't understand the size of their sin debt and the magnitude of Christ's provision in taking care of that debt. By the way, let me just say, on the airwaves, TV and radio, there are some major big guys that promote cheap grace. And so what they fail to do is they fail to to talk about and really understand the size of our sin debt and the magnitude of Christ's provision in taking care of that debt. See, they have their born-again certificate but have no life change. They've, they've walked the aisle, they signed the card, they got dunked in the tank, baptism, but there's no life change because it's cheap grace. God forgives, that's what he does. And uh, this is an understanding of grace as an abstract acceptance. God forgives. That's his job. It's that mindset. Now, before I move to costly grace, let me tell you a story uh, just to kind of illustrate this. My mother-in-law drove a nice luxury car. It was an older model Cadillac. It was really in great condition. It was really a sweet car. And she came over to the house one morning. This is about 20 some odd years ago and she parked it in our driveway and she went in to talk with Nancy and the kids and hang out with them and so I got this crazy idea that I would I thought I think I'll do go outside and do some weed eating so I'm out there weed eating front lawn her car's just sitting right over there and for some reason I thought that's nah, no big deal this this weed eater is not going to hurt her car and I, as I was weeding weed eating through there all of a sudden I hear this pop and then her side window just shatters in that car. And I looked, I was stunned by it, and I go, oh, crap. I mean, I was like, oh. So I went inside and told her that some kids were throwing rocks out in the front. No, I didn't say that to her. I didn't say that. I said, hey, I'm sorry, I really messed up. And she was extremely gracious to me. She's never talked to me since. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, but, but, it, but that, that event helped me to understand more clearly justice, mercy, and grace, to say the least. <laughs> and so, so justice, you guys know what justice is. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is that I pay. I pay for that shattered window in her, in her Cadillac. So mercy would mean, so if I don't get justice, then she's going to be merciful. And mercy means that uh, you, you don't get what you deserve, and she pays. She pays for that. If somebody has to pay. She can't go around without a window in the, in the driver's side. and So somebody has to pay. Grace means that not only does she pay for that new window, but she takes me out for a steak dinner. See, that's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So he doesn't apply justice to us. That justice is placed on Christ, and we receive mercy and grace. By the way, she did pay for the window, but she never did take me out for a steak dinner. 
And so that kind of gives you a little bit of an understanding of this. Uh, someone must pay for the damage. Someone comes over to your house and knocks over a very expensive lamp and destroys it. Well, that person will either need to pay or you're going to need to pay or you're just going to go without a lamp and that will be a dark corner in your house. But someone has to pay. And so it is even more so with our sin before a holy God And uh, so here's costly grace. Costly grace is marked by an understanding that if God was willing to go to the cross and endure such pain and absorb such a cost in order to save us, if he's willing to do that, then why wouldn't we want to live our lives for his glory? And if we don't, it's because we don't understand what he's done. We don't understand our sinfulness and his holiness and what he has done to, to bridge the gap between us and him, that Grand Canyon size gap of sin. He built the bridge through our advocate so that we could have intimacy with God. Costly grace will change you from the inside out. And in fact, Martin Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone True faith will bring life change. And by the way, not just once, but throughout your life, you should be continuing to change. You should be continuing to change throughout your life. And let me just say, it's absolutely beautiful. I am so thankful for the change that Christ continues to bring into my life. I am desperate for him and for, desperate for him to continue to bring about change in my life. And that's a, really a sign that you have an intimate relationship with him. You're becoming more whole, more holy, more healthy in your walk with him. And it gets better and better. I've been doing this a long time, and I'm telling you, it gets better and better when you walk with the God of the galaxies, when you know him, when you experience him. I like that hoo-hoo, Okay. Woohoo! Yeah, that's right. That's how I feel. I'm like, woohoo! That's great. That's fantastic. And so, as as a Christian, you are not sinless, but you will begin to sin less. And so, don't sin. That's the first thing. So, how do we embrace our advocate? Don't sin. But here's the next one: If you do sin, don't despair. Don't despair. That's the second part of verse one. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh my goodness, that's a beautiful verse. You feel like a failure? Don't worry. Listen, you've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a beautiful verse, absolutely a beautiful verse. So let's define advocate. It's on your notes there. An advocate, it is a legal representative who is for you and whatever they achieve, you achieve. Whatever they lose, you lose. Let me give you some examples of that. Our political leaders would fit into that category. They, they represent us. We vote on them and then we send them to Washington and then we get troubled over the fact that they don't represent us really well. And so that can create some turmoil, but that's, that's their job is to represent the people that voted for them. And another example of this would be a lawyer who has power of attorney. That's an advocate. Or I know that I was, along with my mom, we were advocates uh, 
of my father who had severe dementia and would have been abused in some of the places where we, we took him to if we hadn't stood up and advocated for him. Maybe you've had that same experience before with an, with an elderly parent trying to provide for them and be their advocate. I think the best example of this being an advocate is David versus Goliath. And what they would do in those, those nations, instead of sending their armies up against each other, they would find a champion. They would find a champion, and the champion of the Israelites was David, and the champion of the Philistines was Goliath. And so they would fight. And of course, we know the story. David won, so the nation of Israel won. Goliath lost, therefore the Philistines lost. They were their champion. And the word champion, the, the Greek word is archigon, archigon. And a beautiful example of this is found in Hebrews 2, uh, 12, 2, where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the archigon, the champion of our faith, is what it literally says there. When you understand the Greek there, he's the champion of our faith. He's our champion. And so, let me ask you this question. Why are superhero-type movies so popular? What do you think? Why are they so popular? Where the hero snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, they win for all the people when it seems they are certain to lose. And, and not just superhero movies. Maybe you're not into superhero movies, but, but I know that all of us are kind of into good against evil kind of movies. We, we like to see good prevail. You know, I was thinking of a, of a Denzel Washington movie, The Equalizer, where, where you see these despicable people doing despicable things, and you're kind of cheering Denzel Washington on to go get them. Yes! And so, you know, any number of movies, if you, you really look close, you'll see an advocate. And that is meant to point you to the ultimate advocate because there's a longing inside of us for a champion. This place is a mess. We need help. Guess what? The only help, the only true help there is is that we have an advocate. We have an advocate through Christ Jesus. All of those are a dim glimpse of the ultimate hero, king, savior, advocate, Jesus Christ. So when you see a kind of a superhero, that's just a dim glimpse of who Christ is and what he's done for us. I mean, so many movies have the gospel in, in them. They're not written into the, into the text, but you can see because it's pro, pro, portraying this advocate that wins the day for the people. And always keep that in mind when you watch those movies. Let it draw your heart back to Jesus. And uh, Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire running for president, was on 60 Minutes this last year, and I watched the program. And it was fascinating because the interviewer asked uh, him, so let me ask you this. Uh, when you stand before God, what makes you think you're, you're gonna get into heaven? It was basically the question. I thought, wow, that's a great question. And I was curious, more curious about what, how he would respond. And, um, and, and let me just paraphrase how he, respond, how he responded. He basically said, on judgment day, when I stand before God, I believe that my goodness will outweigh my badness, that his goodness will achieve his acceptance into heaven. What do you guys think? 
uh, you failed. Yeah, that's exactly it. What? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. He actually thinks, and he went through a list of things, all the good things that he had done. One of them was keeping people from smoking. I'm just thinking, what? I mean, that was one of the, uh, on the list. But yeah, God's going to accept me and everything's going to be cool. And, and that's how a lot of Americans believe. In fact, if you were asked the average American if they're going to go to heaven, what would they say? Yes, of course I am. And then you were to follow that up with another question. So what makes you think you're going to heaven? Because I am basically a, I'm a basically a good person. And uh, I don't need an advocate. I don't need an advocate. I can do this on my own. In fact, pride would take offense that I would say, you are terribly sinful and you are in desperate need of a savior and yet that's what the Bible says. And pride would, if you have pride in you, that's offensive. But if you're in touch with your own fallenness and sinfulness, oh my goodness, it's sweet to your ears. It's beautiful. You love that. And uh, it tells us in Isaiah 64, 6 that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And it's too despicable for me to even tell you what those filthy rags are. You're going to have to ask a friend on that one and maybe do some research on that. But what he's saying, he's not saying our, our, our bad deeds are filthy rags. He's saying our best deeds are filthy rags. And yes, God is that holy, and yes, we are that sinful, and we will be eternally separated from him apart from our advocate, Jesus who came to rescue us and save us and love us. No one loves you like him. No one. And uh, we have a defense attorney, an advocate that has, listen to me, that has never lost a case. I love it. Look at what it says in verse 1. He says, Jesus Christ the righteous. He lived the life we should have lived. And then in verse 2, he is the propitiation of our sins. He died the death we should have died. He got what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves. And so this is how you should start each day. You should start each day with this ringing in your soul, the reality of the gospel and what he's accomplished for you. You should be saying this to yourself regularly. I am accepted, secure, and significant to the only eyes in the universe that matter. And that is the God of the galaxies. I was studying this last week. Isaiah 40, 12 says, God marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. I begin to reflect on that. I go, oh, man. You know what the span of your hand is? From your, your thumb to your little finger. And it's saying, he marked out the heavens? We look into the heavens and it goes on forever and ever and ever. Wow. God, you are, you are amazingly great beyond our comprehension. And yet, and yet, in his greatness, he cares about you. And he loves you. And he came to this earth to die for you. That's, that's breathtaking. That's That's overwhelming. That gets a hold of your heart, you're going to change, believe me. It'll transform your life. 
And you also want to keep in mind, too, is that he is my loving heavenly father. He sees me as he sees Jesus. He loves me as he loves Jesus. He adores me as he adores Jesus. He rejoices over me as he rejoices over Jesus. And along with that, you need to constantly remind yourself that no sin or suffering is a match for your advocate who is working in you and for you and through you. Stop there just for a minute. Let's, let's talk about that. What are you facing? What hardship, what difficulty? It doesn't matter the odds. You don't have to be overwhelmed by the difficulties of life. You have an advocate who's working in you, for you, through you. He's with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's the reality of the gospel. And what sin are you being overtaken by? He's bigger. And he'll give you so much satisfaction in himself that sin will lose lose its appeal to you. That's just how he works. And, and, And so there is no sin or suffering as a match for your advocate. You don't need to be overcome by by trauma or overtaken by sin. He's with you. He will see you through that no matter what you're facing. Remember, mental health is being in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety. You can be there. You can have that. You can experience that. That's the wholeness that he wants to create within us. And so so don't sin, but if you do sin, don't despair. And then here's the next one. Apply the gospel. That's your next fill in the blank. Apply the gospel to yourself through, through repentance. Through repentance. Repentance and faith. It's found in verse uh, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The the word propitiation, I put the definition on your notes. It means that God's wrath is turned away from us and, and we are restored to a place of favor and friendship with God. So think about this. We were traitors. We were insubordinate. We were rebellious towards God, so he takes takes those of us that were his enemies and he makes us his children that he dearly loves. Let that land on you. It's it's amazing. Only the perfect sinless sacrifice of Christ can settle our sin debt forever. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. All of life is is repentance and faith. Repentance doesn't bring the Father's love. The Father's love brings the repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We turn away from sin because we realize, what in the world am I thinking? We come to our senses and we go, "What what am I doing? He offers so much more than anything that this world would ever offer me. And um, probably the, the best definition for this true repentance and faith is found in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. The address is on your notes. And the reason why this is so important, I've sat down with uh, couples before where possibly the, the wife or the husband has committed adultery, but they're, they're wanting to... Um, They're wanting to repent, and so one of the ways that I would be able to identify whether it was true repentance, uh, uh, a worldly repentance or truly a godly repentance, because that's the distinction that 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11 bring us, is 
is by understanding what those two mean. Worldly repentance is sorrow for the pain or the consequences this sin has caused me. So I've sat down with people and I go, no, you're just sorry because you got caught and all the pain that that's caused you. That's not real repentance and that will not bring change. And your marriage will never be restored until you truly repent and you have a godly repentance. And so godly repentance is sorrow for the pain this sin has caused God and others regardless of the consequences. Even as David, remember David committed adultery, murder, and betrayed his whole country. And, when, and through his repentant psalm, he had true repentance. He had godly repentance because in that repentant psalm, Psalm 32 and then Psalm 51, he says this, against you, you alone have I sinned. You're thinking, wait, wait. David, you sinned against your whole nation. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against her husband. You killed him. And he said, yes, I did all of that, but that was symptomatic of me trampling on the love and the wisdom of God. I drove a dagger into his heart, the one who loves me and has pursued me and walked by my side. I was rebellious and trampled on his love and wisdom. And when you begin to understand that, that that's what really drives this, this godly kind of repentance, and that's what brings change. You begin to see the weight of your sin in light of the magnitude of his provision for you, and it creates this awe and wonder in your life that nothing can ever take away. And... Um, and so probably the best example of this is Judas versus Peter. Remember, Judas betrayed Christ and then Peter denied Christ, which is a form of betrayal. But the fact that Judas hung himself after he betrayed Jesus is evidence of worldly repentance. To have godly repentance would have driven Judas back to the arms of his advocate Jesus as it did for Peter rather than to the pit of despair. So when you repent, when he, when he convicts us, it's not to shame us, it's to drive us into his arms to redeem us, to love us, to make us whole. And if it drives you into despair, then you don't understand repentance. You don't understand confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, make us whole and holy. And that's 1 John 1, 9. And so failing to practice the spiritual discipline of godly repentance, I, I practice this daily because there are thoughts I think, there are things I say, there are actions I, I do that I desperately need to have the Holy Spirit convict me of so that I can go back and make things right and confess and repent and allow him to bring cleansing to my life. And if you, if you don't see that in you, you're out of touch. You're deceiving yourself. I mean, mine be, you know, it all begins in our thoughts. The crazy thoughts that I think sometimes I'm like, and the, and the Holy Spirit will convict me and say, why are you thinking like this? Guard your heart. Think these kind of thoughts. The Bible actually says, think these kind of thoughts. Fourth chapter of Philippians. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And a lot of times I don't think about those things. I think about other things. And boy, it has an effect on my response to life and the people around me. And so he brings conviction. And he does that because he loves us. And that's, it, it's, uh, 
And failing to practice the spiritual discipline of godly repentance will cause you to continue to repeat the same sin over and over again, and it will strengthen sin's power over you. In fact, when besetting sins, whatever you're struggling with, when besetting sins plague us, we may have never truly repented. We may not have seen the sin to be as detestable as God sees it. And so we we deceive ourselves if we do not routinely acknowledge the power of sin, our propensity as fallen creatures to sin, and our need for God's grace through Jesus to overcome sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all, all of our sins and cleanse us. He wants to make us whole. That's what he's working. That's what he's doing in our lives. This is what I found through the years. I've been walking with Christ for a long time. I got baptized when I was 10, and I'm 48, and so (laughs) do the math. Okay, I'm 63. So that would mean I've been, I've known Christ and I've been a Christian for 53 years. And so through the years, and maybe you've experienced this before, you get a decade or two of walking with him and then you look back on those first few decades and you go, wow, I was a fool. You know, that was ridiculous. And uh, this is what I've learned. Your future self will always see your present self as unwise and immature, That means you are currently unwise and immature. Yeah, right now. Because 10 years down the road, if you're really walking with him, he's going to continue to transform you. You haven't arrived yet, by the way. You know that. You haven't arrived. Therefore, he's still working. And you'll look back and go, oh, I used to believe this. And that was a mess. But now I believe this. And oh, it has been so freeing to me. And that's part of his work in our lives. Don't sin, but if you do sin, don't despair. Apply the gospel to to yourself through repentance and faith. Here's the next one. Obey God. Obey God. It gives evidence you know him. It gives evidence you know him. No sin is ever fatal or final unless we refuse to get back up. Now, I was raised around horses. Everybody in the family had a horse, and we'd go out for horseback rides. I actually uh, team roped for, for a while with my dad. And I loved it. And so if we ever fell off the horse, guess what dad would do? He gets right back on that horse. Get back on the horse. Get back on the horse. And so, okay, you failed. Get back on the horse. Obey God. Get back up. Keep going. And sometimes we need people that are friends of ours that help us to get back on the horse or even say, Listen, you need to get back on the horse. Keep obeying him. Keep following him. Regardless of of how much you've fallen, keep following him. Keep obeying him. Listen to what it says in verses 3 and 4 as it relates to obedience. So obey God. It gives evidence you know him. See if you can see that in verses 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, let me tell you a little bit about God's commandments. God's commandments are not arbitrary. They're not random, haphazard, and illogical. God gives them to us from his perfect perfect love and infinite wisdom. And they not only reflect the character of God, but also the character God is developing us into. 
And this is what I've learned through the years, not only from my own personal experience, but from the experience of many others, that you can't break God's laws. You can only break yourself against his laws. Let me illustrate that for you. First uh, John 3 and 4, it says, sin is lawlessness. It's insubordination, rebellion against God. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So you don't break his laws, you break yourself against his laws. It's an urban legend, but it makes, very, it makes a very valid point. This is the transcript of a radio conversation of a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The radio conversation released by the chief of naval operations, 101095. These are the Americans in the naval ship. Uh, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadian authorities recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadian authorities. No, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans respond. This is the aircraft carrier of the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians. This is a lighthouse. Your call. That's God's commandments. You don't break his commandments. You break yourself against his commandments. In his wisdom, he knows how he created us. And he's saying, this is where you will become whole and holy in me. And so I, I, I give you these commandments because I have your best interest at heart. And uh, so how to embrace your advocate. Don't sin. And if you do sin, don't despair. Apply the gospel to yourself through repentance and faith and, and then obey God. Get back up on the horse. So why should we embrace our advocate? He, I think he gives us two reasons to, to help motivate us because if you keep his word, you'll be perfected in his love. That's the next fill in the blank. So why should we embrace our advocate? Because if you keep his word, you'll be perfected in his love. Look at verse five. This is a sweet verse. This is really good. I've been meditating on it this last week. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. You keep his word, the love of God is perfected in you. I want that. I want his love perfected in me. By this, we may know that we are in him. So what does it mean to keep his word? It means to be so saturated with God's word that it becomes your interpretive grid for how you see and respond to life. It becomes your biblical worldview. The reason, listen to me, the reason why we are over, over come by the difficulties of life and the reason why we're overtaken by the, the, the temptations of life is because we don't have a biblical worldview. We don't realize the advocate that is with us. He loves us. And he's working in us and through us and for us. 
And we got to come back to that. We need to develop a biblical worldview. The only way you're going to do that is that you need to daily interact with God through his word and the work of his Holy Spirit, this mutual giving and receiving of truth and love, truth and love, as we talked about the very first weekend. 1 John 4, 18 and 19, what you'll discover as you interact with him is that, his, that uh, we don't love him because we love him because, we love him because he first loved us. And then it goes on to say, his perfect love chases away the fears. Our fears is because we desperately need to be made perfect in his love. Our lives are fragmented because of living in a broken world of sin and suffering. But Christ has come from heaven to earth to put our lives back together again. So the gospel is the good news of the true story that Jesus came from heaven to earth to defeat sin, death, and evil through his life, death, and resurrection and, and is making all things new, starting with us. But for you to, for him to put your life back together Again, you have to give him all the pieces, all of your sin and suffering. That's why forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. When you pray that daily, you're taking out the trash. That's opportunity to become whole in him. God's goal is your wholeness, your holiness, your healthiness, it's being more and more like Christ. I, I was thinking of this, I wrote this down. Wouldn't you love, wouldn't you love to be more thankful, less scornful, more gracious, less bitter, more worshipful, less worried, more loving and less impatient, more courageous and less fearful, more truthful and less pretense, more joyful and less hopeless, more peaceful and less stressed, more content and less covetous, or envious, more satisfied and less restlessness. See, all of those characteristics describe Jesus and that they can also describe us and they're not predicated upon our circumstances so that you can be, and this is what he's wanting to do, he's wanting to make you more thankful, gracious, worshipful, loving, courageous, truthful, joyful, peaceful, content and satisfied in him. That's his work. But how do we do that? I think that the next point answers that for us. How do we become more like him? Abide in him and you'll become more like him. Look at verse six. Whoever says he Whoever says he abides in him, abides in God. The word abide means to dwell. Uh, it means to make your home in him. Really speaking of an intimate relationship with him. You enjoy him. You love him. You, you walk with him. You're getting to know him. So whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So don't focus on being like Jesus. Like I've got to do better I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, you'll never be able to do that. You're not, you're not gonna pull it off. But if you focus on being with him, he will transform your life. So focus on being with him and he will make you more like him. Abide in him through mutual giving and receiving of love and truth and you will become more and more like him. Now, let me end by sharing with you a story to kind of uh, finish up this message here. And... Uh, it was, a, it was an article I read this last year, uh, 8-20-2019. It was written by Patty Withers. It's pretty hard-hitting. I loved it. It was really good. But the uh, title of this article is Why P- 
penal substitutionary atonement matters for counseling. Penal means penalty of our sins. Uh, Substitutionary means that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And then atonement means, and through doing that, he made us at one minute. You can actually split the word down, atonement, at one meant with God. We are reunited to him. Listen to what she says. I was a murderer. When I was 25, I became pregnant, unsaved, unmarried, raised in a church that taught that babies weren't human until they were born. The solution to my problem was nauseatingly simple. So I made an appointment, had the procedure, took a few days off from work, and went back to life as usual. It was only after the Lord saved me that I realized the weight of what I'd done. The sin was so heinous and irreparable and the guilt and shame were so overwhelming that it was nearly 10 years before I told anyone other than my husband what I had done. I believed that God had forgiven me of my sin of abortion and yet my guilt and shame lingered. What I lacked was an understanding and an application of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. My lingering guilt and shame were a result of not really understanding that in addition to forgiveness, my salvation also brought me justification and a right standing with God. The wrath of God that I justly deserved has been completely satisfied by Christ. Therefore, God removed the guilt of my sin and granted to me the righteousness of Christ. And she, she has a couple verses here, Psalm 103, 12, and Romans 3, 21 through 22. Understanding the, the penal substitutionary atonement is essential to every believer's life because knowing that we are right with God affects how we think about and relate to him, others, and ourselves, ourselves and others. Penal substitutionary atonement is also vital for counseling. We're, we're all kind of counselors to our friends. We're gonna be speaking truth and love to them in some way or another, but, but as counselors, we must help our counselees see that because of Christ's substitutionary atonement, they can have relief from guilt and shame, a proper view of forgiveness, and access to the Father. I love that. I love that story. Next weekend, love one another. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Uh, I'll be up front here with my my wife. And if you are new, we would love to meet you. And if you need any prayer for whatever it might be, we would love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, help help us not to sin, but if we do sin... May we not despair, but apply the gospel to ourselves through repentance, faith, and obedience, giving evidence that we know you. We pray that through the work and power of the Holy Spirit that we would, that we would keep your word and be perfected in your love. Teach us how to focus on being with you so that we can become more like you. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.